When the sun rises, I wake up and chase my dreams. I won't regret when the sun sets, cause I live my life like I'm a beast. What up? You're listening to the Lifestyle Practice Podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Derek and I are here finally finishing up the fifth and last in a little series of podcasts on finding your lifestyle practice. Derek, I hope we have not tired you out on the topic. It is great to be with you. Do you think you can handle a little more? Well, I I can take one more, Steve. One more. (laughs) One more. But first... I could not believe the picture you texted me this week. You got to tell us all about your gnarly battle wound. Uh, I wish I had a cool story about it. The last few days, I've been trying to think of as many different stories as I can to tell patients. My original story that I've been telling is that there was a burning building. I saved a few children, and I was pushing out the last baby as this beam fell on the back of my ankle and broke it. Sounds about right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, nobody ever believes that. (laughs) I was at a park and there was was a really cool trail. And it's one of those trails where there's a bunch of like little fitness stops along the way where you can do like pull-ups, dips and other stuff. And there was one that was just a box that you could jump up on or that you could step on. And so I was was doing like one leg step-ups or uh, one leg squats going up and down. And as I was stepping down with my left foot, I came down on the side of my ankle and I rolled it pretty bad. Really bad. Yeah. <laughs> like you have an extra ankle coming out of your ankle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I immediately knew that something was different about this. It didn't, it didn't hurt real bad. I mean, it probably was because of the adrenaline, but I just dropped straight on my back when it happened. And then I looked at my ankle and it immediately started swelling. I was nervous that I might not be able to walk. So I I hopped up and it was painful, but I could walk. So I walked about a quarter mile to the trailhead and called Jenny and she came and picked me up. But yeah, I'll, I'll have to post a picture on our Facebook page for anyone that's interested I thought it was just a bad sprain. The next day, it was Saturday night. The next day I stayed in bed most of the day, icing it, keeping it wrapped, trying to keep the swelling down, keeping it propped up. At one point I thought, you know, I'm feeling pretty good. I think I could probably try and walk on it. And so I did. And within like seconds, I could feel the blood rushing back down to it and all the pain coming back. So, yeah, I decided that was a bad idea. So I I borrowed a boot from somebody, started riding one of those little scooters around. I went to work on Monday, and then I got it checked out at the end of that day. And it turns out that I tore my deltoid ligament, which I did not know that there was a ligament in our foot called the deltoid ligament. Oh, very nice. Funny because your deltoid's up on your shoulder, but... X-rays showed that I broke my navicular bone, which I forgot which one that one was as well. But anyway, so I'm in a a boot for, he said, anywhere from four to eight weeks. It is broken, but it is the two parts of the navicular bone are intimate and very likely going to heal back together without surgery. Just need to be stabilized for quite a while. Woo. So yeah. is this your is this like your rheostat foot? Like is it impairing your work? You know, it's interesting because 
I always thought that I used my right foot mostly for my re-step, but I've, I realized that I actually use my left foot quite a bit. So now I can't use it. And it does, for the most part, I'm doing okay. The, mo- the most annoying part is just going from room to room and getting up and down out of the chair, making sure that I never put any weight on it. So I'm getting by, but <laughs> man, I, I, luckily I only have a three day work week, but gosh, this was the longest three day work week ever. It's, <laughs> it's been tough. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that it wasn't my hand or something, you know, I can at least still work, but it's uh, no bueno. Oh, I thought you were going to lose it for a little while there. It's like, ah, uh, well, no, we're just going to have to cut it off below the knee, you know? <laughs> Uh, no, I'm not ready to throw in the towel yet. All right. Well, hopefully you're uh, you're off the vegetarian diet and you can get some like calcium from milk or something and <laughs> your bones can heal again. Uh, that's all a myth anyway, Steve. I know. I know. You're just really fit these days and healthy. Well, I wish you a speedy recovery, my friend. That's Thank no you. fun. Let's kind of recap real quick. So far in the last few episodes, we have talked about the steps into looking into acquiring a practice, understanding the different kinds of practices available, how to find these practices, how to determine the different criteria to help you as you sift through them, what you should look into, and how to evaluate opportunities for growth in the potential practice you want to purchase. So if you know you want to own a practice and don't own a practice now, this could be a a great way to start the process. And I'd recommend going back and listening to them. Today, we're going to finish it up and we're going to say for today, you've been through the process of everything we've talked about. You've decided where you want to live. You've, You've found the practice you want and you think this is the one you want to buy. Where do you go from here? So let's maybe hit a couple of the questions that people ask when they get to this point. Real common one is usually often the first one is how much should this practice cost or how much should I pay for this practice? Now there are obviously many different ways to value a practice just to give you a bearing. Most practices you could say sell for roughly two thirds of gross collections or two times the net profit. Those are, of course, they vary widely, but that's kind of a back of the napkin general ballpark for an average practice. Now, of course, it varies and it can vary a lot depending on the profitability, not just, you know, the gross collections. It's going to vary on the market, you know, is this a metro area, a coastal area? It's probably going to cost more. It's going to depend on tons of stuff. For example, COVID, that's really changed a lot of the acquisitions happening right now. Obviously, your demand in the area, the location of the practice, the age of the facility has a lot to do with it. And, you know, lots of other factors are going to play into how much a practice is going to cost. Yeah, just let me add in that what you stated will will apply to most practices in the, the United States. You know, if you think of a bell curve, typically that top of the bell curve is going to be right where you said that's about two thirds of collections. There'll be some areas in the U.S. that might have very low demand and sell for 50% of collections. And then there'll be others that sell for 100% of collections because of high demand. 
And then meanwhile, in Canada, practices are selling for 200% of collections. No, so, are you serious? Yeah. Really? Yep. Wow. That's awesome. Well, yeah, it's awesome if you're the seller. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, I've worked with a couple clients in, in Canada and they just, they understand that that's just, that's what they're, they're looking at. And that's part of the process. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's just differences. But the point is, is that there's no perfect way for an evaluation to be done. But the more important thing is to be familiar with the area that you're looking so that you know how the practice that you're looking at compares to other practices that are for sale in the area. But I think it'd be good, though, to at least kind of get into a few of the details and and talk about how some of these evaluations are done, how the seller comes up with the asking price. Why don't you go into that a little, Steve? Yeah, yeah. Well, this is my hypothesis, and I think it's true. Most of the time, when a when a doc wants to sell his or her practice, when you get a prospectus, it's going to have like the breakdown and the valuation methods. But really, I think what happens is the seller talks with a broker and says how much they want to get for this practice, and the broker says, "Yeah, we could probably do it for that much," and then they kind of run the numbers to make that valuation fit into the desired sales price. So. I think it's good to be able to establish for yourself your own criteria and formula for evaluating a practice, a step deeper than two-thirds collections or two times net rules. Let me interrupt you. It's interesting. So your hypothesis, I actually asked a broker one time about his specific evaluation process because there were some things that I had seen a few of his appraisals and I asked him, I said, so how do you decide on this factor? You know, because it was like, take this factor 1.2 and then another practice was like 1.4 and and he really dodged the question he was like he's like oh you know i don't share all that with everybody you know it just (laughs) depends and and in my head i'm like okay the seller just told you what he wanted to sell for and you just fudge that you know that that number is just your fudge factor that you use to get to the point that you wanted to yeah i think that's the way it is in most cases i would say I mean, yeah. that's probably what you're going to do, right? Someday when you sell a practice, you're going to be like, I, I think I can get this much for it. So I think it's good for you, the buyer, to be able to learn to value practices. A good way to do this, in my opinion, is to determine EBITDA, which stands for earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. Big word. But I think an easy way for our purposes here to think of this number is what would be the profit on this practice if you owned it as an investor instead of the doctor and the doctor was an employee of yours working at the practice? So basically you could take all the total collections of an office, subtract from it the costs, the staff payroll, and pay the doctor what would be a usual salary, so 33% of the doctor's production. The leftover is the EBITDA number, that kind of leftover profit there. If that was too much for you right there, don't worry. <laughs> you can practice figuring this number out when you get a P&L and, or two and kind of go through it once or twice. But that's a very commonly used and more specific number that helps you understand the profitability or value of a practice. Practices that have a lot of hygiene production often have higher EBITDA because the revenue is being made from staff other than the doctor. But anyways, you'll get this EBITDA number 
And then most practices will sell for a multiple of this. Most dental practices, I would say, and I mean, it varies a ton, but most practices selling to another private solo doc will sell for maybe two to four, maybe two to 4.5 times EBITDA. Positive factors earn higher multiples. For example, if this is a really nice fee-for-service practice on a busy road with great equipment, you could get four to five and a half times EBITDA. Or on the other hand, less desirable factors are going to give you a lower EBITDA multiple. So for example, a a practice that's a hundred percent Medicaid or one of these practices where it's like, you know, niche to a foreign language or a really outdated facility. Obviously, these are going to have a much, much lower multiple of EBITDA, like one to two times EBITDA. So if when you're looking for a practice, a nice practice is selling for two times EBITDA, that, you know, because of this window, may be a really good deal, maybe even underpriced. If a doctor is selling for five times EBITDA after you determine what the EBITDA number is, that practice could be in a very desirable market or maybe it's overpriced. Big picture here is you want to be able to look at practice numbers and be able to tell what is reasonable or what is not. And more importantly, what you would be willing to pay for the practice. What would you say, Derek? Is that a little too mathy or how would you evaluate the proper price for a a practice you want to buy? No, um, those were some great examples and kind of ways to look through it. In my experience, I mean, you probably, I mean, this has just been my experience, but you probably are not going to hear a broker even say EBITDA or see it in their practice appraisal most of the time. Yeah. They'll have a pro forma. They'll talk about, you know, why they think it's worth a certain amount, stuff like that. So I guess my point is, is that I don't know that it's it's necessarily used a lot, but I do think that it's a very good tool for anyone looking at buying a practice to be able to have a formula where you can start to compare practices. You can look at this one and say, oh, this one's a 2.5 multiple. This one's four. And you you start to recognize some of the differences. And it's great because it really helps you evaluate things based based on profit, where honestly, I think profit is not taken into account as much as it should be in a dental practice. I think more often than not, it's based very strictly off of what the collections is. But it's the same with houses. You can pay for an appraisal and get a pretty good idea. But even then, the house is only worth what the market will pay for it. So with the practice, it's the same. The seller and their representation decide on what the asking price is going to be. And then you have to decide what it's worth to you. Honestly, there's a decent amount of people that get so hung up on the numbers and getting an exact on the evaluation. And I disagree with this mentality. There's so much more to the big picture that is going to tell you about the value rather than just the profit or the EBITDA. So again, these are tools to help you to look at and to compare differences in a practice to be able to recognize opportunities. Yeah. Great. So here's a question for you, Derek. Lots of times people will follow up on this question. If if the asking price isn't what they would like to pay for it or what they think they should, is it okay to try and negotiate a lower price or is that going to destroy you know the goodwill with the seller? 
Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. Surprisingly, I think this gets asked a lot. But yeah, the answer is absolutely. It's definitely within your realm to try to negotiate a lower price. Everything in life is negotiable if you approach it with the right attitude. And practices are no different. If you know your market and you know what the practice could or or should sell for, then that gives you an idea of where you want to be at. You can definitely come in with an offer that's lower. It all depends on how you want to play your cards. If it's a high demand area, you're going to have less leverage and you will likely want to be more careful in how you submit an offer. What I mean by that is that Instead of simply giving a lower offer, you could offer close to the asking price and then ask for things that make the deal better for you, whether that means including the accounts receivable or you know, adding in specific terms that make the deal more favorable for you or asking for mentorship, whatever it is, you can ask for some of those things. So negotiating with a practice is no different than any other area of your life. It depends on how badly you want it and what it's worth to you. I will say that I have seen some potential deals go south by people on either side getting too hung up on some of the details. As a buyer, you have to remember that when you buy a practice and get into ownership, you are paying for a great income in a lot of situations. Many times, you're allowing yourself to get in a position of being able to make hundreds of thousands of dollars more per year. So is it worth haggling over $50,000 on something? I mean, that's totally up to each person, but I would keep that in mind. Negotiation is fun, in my opinion. I, I love negotiating. I, I, I enjoy it. <laughs> You're good at it too. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I just picture it, you know, it's like this really great poker game and you're trying to know as much about the other player and their hand while re- revealing as little as possible about your own hand. But at the same time, you know, you don't have to be a great negotiator to own a practice, but it can come in handy or be helpful in maneuvering certain situations. But, you know, you can also rely on a good team, a good CPA to help you walk through this process as well. What are your thoughts, Steve? Do you agree? Yeah, those are great points. I I like those. I'm in your boat. I think it's definitely appropriate to negotiate. I like the way, I think you mentioned it and the way you did it in your practices, you felt that you could go lower. And so you came up with specific things in the practice that you felt needed updating or needed changing. And then you came up with the, the cost of, in your case, it was digitizing and updating the office and you got a bid together. It costed this much to do it. And so you sent that and, and basically they lowered the price that much, didn't they? Is, am I remembering that right? Yeah. So they had their asking price. I did the evaluation in my offer. I basically said, I believe that an updated practice with your numbers would be worth this much. We'll just say 500,000. Well, it's going to cost me 50,000 to get to where it should be. So my offer is 450,000. The seller ended up saying, I just can't take it for that low. I can't go below 
480. And so I said, okay, well, I can do that if you will include the accounts receivable. And he said, okay. And that's where we ended up settling. Yeah. So you haggled over 50K. No, just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you bring up a perfect point, but I was also totally willing to, I knew that there were a lot of other good practices that I could find. So I was willing to walk away from the deal, but I felt like my offer was was fair and was good. Who knows? I don't know. If he would have ended up saying that he wasn't willing to do that, maybe I still would have said, okay, well, I'll pay for what you want for it. At the same time, though, I didn't know that I was going to have such immediate success in this practice. So if I had known that, it'd be a lot easier for me to say, oh, man, I'm. It, that's easy for me to pay what they're asking. Sure. You know, but none of us ever know. So you have to play the game based on the cards that you have at the time of the game. Yeah, I like how you mentioned AR. I think that's a good negotiating chip or offer, I guess, or to request to include the AR in it. I did the same thing with my practice and we got it lumped in. Another thing I did was we kind of talked about the practice and the building as just a lump sum. So, you know, you feel like the practice is this much, the building was appraised for this much. Can we just get the practice and building for X amount of dollars is what we offered. And he said, yeah, let's do it. And it was simple. And I mean, the bank had to kind of break up the loan. So it was a little tricky on the financing side, but that's another something to consider. Yeah. Yeah. With this negotiation, let's talk about how we present these offers. And that is through initially the letter of intent, also called the LOI. This is what its name suggests. It's a document that says, I'd like to buy your practice. And in it, you're going to lay out the basic terms of the deal, the details of which will be refined more in the eventual legal asset purchase agreement, you know, that you have at closing. But the LOI is kind of the starter. So it's a non-binding document. You know, you're not locking yourself into anything legally, but it's an acknowledgement that you want to buy the practice. This is your offer to purchase it at such and such a price as well as some other things you can include, like arrangements for the seller staying or leaving, the AR, the timeline in the transition and closing, among other things. Would you say that's a good description of how an LOI works, Derek? Yeah, yeah. I would just add one more thing. When I was learning about the process, I thought, when I first heard, oh, it's non-binding, I thought, so okay, so it's really no big deal, right? So I could just make a bunch of LOIs and then see which one looks the best and just go with that. Well, I mean, so technically that's true, but it's more complicated than that. So yes, the LOI is non-binding, but it, it also is very important. You could back out and not probably not have very much repercussions from it unless they're asking for earnest money, but that happens less often than you think. But the LOI is a document that is going to act as your blueprint in working through this whole process. So when the big contract called the Asset Purchase Agreement is being worked through and written out in detail, the letter of intent, the LOI, is going to be referred to over and over again. It's Mm going to, you know, you're going to be going through things and they're going to say, well, what are we going to do with this? And they say, well, in the letter of intent, we agreed upon this. So yeah. if there are any 
things or any points that are important to you, you want to make sure that these get included into the letter of intent. Yep, totally agree. After the letter of intent, you know, you've sent it out, you've kind of gone back and forth, you come to terms and you're agreeing that you're going to purchase this practice. The next step that Dennis and Mealy begin to wonder is how in the world am I going to pay for this thing, right? So how do you get finance for purchasing a practice? I'd recommend go to multiple banks. I'm not like a ton, but I'd, I'd seek out a few banks to get financing. You can put it together in a package so you can make it really easy to talk with lots of them. Put in this package your, your LOI, your practice prospectus, hopefully a blessing from your CPA, you know, speaking about this and, and putting some points behind it. Hopefully you have a, at least some lump sum of money to give yourself some liquidity and some stability and then some tax returns or pay stubs showing that you have been making money. You're a, a producer of dentistry. They can trust you to go in and reproduce what the selling doctor has been doing. Now, your situation when you're buying a practice can change the financing strategy significantly. For example, if you're buying a practice right out of school or right out of residency, it's pretty unlikely that you are going to have some bank offer you several hundred thousand dollars, right? You're going to need something more like an SBA loan or some non-traditional financing route rather or versus if you've been practicing for many years, you have great income history and you're looking really solid to banks. So we're not going to go into the nitty bitty details of SBA loans versus conventional loans. Steve, I think you meant to say nitty gritty. <laughs> Thank you, Grammar Nazi. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but real quick, Steve, I'm pretty sure I got an SBA loan and I think you did as well, right? Yes, yes. I mean, I would say SBA loan is like a second option. Like you're going to have fees and a lot more red tape to work around, but that's for people that can't really get a traditional loan. Right. If you if you've been practicing for a couple of years, you to be honest, I, I mean, people talk about financing a lot, but I think it's not so big of a deal. Banks like dentists, they, you know, when you buy a practice, most of what they're financing is backed by expensive equipment in your practice, which is insured. Dentists rarely default. Uh, I've read somewhere that like a dental practice is like the second safest loan for any bank. So I don't think you know, it's going to be really difficult in most cases if you got your head on your shoulders and some income to to qualify for a bank loan. But you want to make sure you're doing this while you're talking over the LOI so that you have the, the ball rolling at the same time and it's not going to be a, a holdup for you in this process, if that makes sense. Yeah. So one quick thing, you talked about just how a lot of people kind of make a big fuss over banking and financing and their loan and stuff like that. And yes, I think it's worth, you know, spending your time and, and getting the best deal that you can. But I don't think that it's worth changing the timeline of when you want to get to ownership. Decide on when you want to get to ownership first and then make it happen. I mean, you and I both we did it right out of school, which, you know, we've talked about pros and cons of that. And our financing probably wasn't most favorable, but at the same time, like we got to ownership quickly and made a lot more money so that it almost makes the the financing negligible, in my yeah. opinion. So yeah. 
decide first on all the other questions that we've been talking about. Decide on, you know, what's important to you. What what do you want to get out of life and, and what your timeline is? And then find everything else to kind of work around that original goal and vision. Yeah. Here's another question. What professionals should I get on my team to help me in this transaction, in this acquisition? And at what point do I bring professionals on to help me? Derek, what would you say? You're going to want a a preacher, a plumber, (laughs) some hookers. No, no, is that uh, like a movie reference or something? Or no, <laughs> it's a. It's, I think it's a. It's a country song, isn't it? Oh, okay. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. A, I know the what you're the about. three crosses. You know that song? The yeah. Three wooden crosses on the side of the highway. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. funny. I didn't. That's right. That was good. Yeah, but it's not a plumber though. It's a preacher and a hooker and someone else. I don't remember the third one. Anyway, yes. So the question, which professionals should you employ and at what time in the process? You'll probably hear some different opinions on this one as well, but I don't vary too much here. First of all, let's get some facts straight. Some companies and even some brokers will try and tell you, which my broker tried to tell me this as well, and to sell you on this idea that they call dual representation. When they say this, they are trying to tell you that they will handle all of the details that you would need to pay a lawyer and CPA firm to do. And they're they're saving you money while also watching out for your best interests. How nice of them, right? No, it, it wrong. They, <laughs> wrong. No, not nice. <laughs> they offer to do this because it's going to make their life easier if you don't have anyone watching your back and making sure that you get the fair end of the deal. There's no arguments or no back and forth if you don't have good representation. So no matter what they say, you need to have a CPA and an attorney that can guide you through the process. They will be helping you with the letter of intent, negotiating, defining the terms of the contract, etc. I think that you should have an idea of who you want to work with and be in touch with them as you are looking at practices. It's never too early to just reach out and to make a connection as you begin this process. It's reasonable that you should be able to hire both of these groups to represent you through the process for somewhere between ten dollars and $15,000, maybe a little more or less depending on who you want to go with. For many of us, this will likely be the greatest purchase of our entire lives. So do not try and be cheap here. Spend the money to get these professionals on your side. I would also say we've had many people ask us about coaching in their first year of ownership and when to get involved. Usually our advice is when you're looking and you found a practice that you think you want to buy and you're looking to work together in coaching, reach out to us and we will, you know, a lot of times we'll, we'll take a quick look and, and give you any thoughts on it. And then as far as when we actually begin working together in coaching, usually about 30 days before closing gives us time where we can get all the information we can start talking about the acquisition and transition process. We can kind of have a have a roadmap for where we want to go and start developing things. So that's a pretty solid plan, really good way to go. Yeah, great points. I agree what you initially said there. Brokers, <laughs> their incentives are really to get two sides to say yes. And you know that's how they get their compensation, which is usually 
about a 10% cut of the practice purchase price. You know, some brokers are better than others, but I would take advice from them with a grain of salt. I see their role as really kind of just the provider of information. So you want such and such a report to be pulled to review the practice, go and get it for me or go and get it from the seller for me. I don't think they're in most cases really your advocate, if that makes sense. Right. I remember the broker for mine, <laughs> we were, I don't remember, we were going back and forth about something and he's like, oh, I just want to let you know there are lots of people in the works here. There's, it's not just you. So I would try to act fast here, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's like, yeah, oh my gosh, hurry. So just keep that in mind. And then I would, you know, maybe this is a little bit different. I do definitely agree. You want a CPA and a lawyer to be looking over things. But even then, I kind of feel like I would get a Disney, uh, excuse me, Disney? <laughs> I would get a, yes, I would get Disney to come in and look at your practice. <laughs> I would get a dentist business expert, somebody that has been there and kind of rocked this process to go in and look over everything. You know, a CPA can look for compliance and tease out the true cash flow from P&Ls and tax documents. They can give you a pro forma. An attorney can evaluate the legal points of an asset purchase and protect you from like foul play and and make sure that you know you're set up right when you start. I think you need them and you should pay for them in any acquisition. But in my view, I think most of the professionals help with the transaction of your purchase. They can't really advise you fully on like the business merits of your dental practice, if that makes sense. Yeah. Is this a really great opportunity? How are you going to grow? Are you going to be able to grow? I just don't, you know, CPAs and attorneys, they're experts in what they do, but I, I don't think they can answer those questions as well. So I would find, you know, a mentor, you know, a transition expert, someone that does this or has had a lot of success in it. And I would pick their brain. I would find a, I mean, when I did it for my practice, I reached out to, you know, five or six dentists that I really knew were tremendously successful and I kind of got their input. So, but, you know, big picture, you're right. This is the, your biggest purchase in your life. You're going to be married to this practice for a long time, several years in the very least. So get some great dental minds in your corner as well to help you select the right practice and have the financial and legal professionals to make sure the acquisition is sound and done correctly. Yeah, we have had some people reach out to us and ask, you know, hey, can you guys run through all, all these numbers and take some time and want to do that? Most of the time, I don't have a problem just taking a glance and, you know, giving quick feedback. We have offered at times to basically do it for a fee like that we would do for like one month of coaching. And then if you decide to do coaching, then we just include that payment towards the first month. So that's a good option. You know, if anyone's planning on doing coaching, that wouldn't be a bad way to go either. Yeah. Yeah. I think it'd be good just to have more eyes looking over this big decision you're making and, and helping you with the process. So that was great. I think let's wrap this up. I think we are due on time. That was great. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Hopefully, like I mentioned before, these past few podcasts can help jumpstart you into the process of owning a practice that will give you the income and the lifestyle that you want. Of course, if you have questions about this or any thoughts, or if you have a potential practice that you're looking at, go ahead and 
put it up on the Facebook page and the group can weigh in. Like I mentioned, a lot of eyes and a lot of opinions can help you understand and better evaluate an opportunity. Let me just add real quick, Steve. I mean, we've, we've spent a lot of time. I mean, this is now the fifth episode in a row where we've been talking about this. My biggest advice at this point would just be take ownership Realize that you are in control of your life. You can have what you want if you're willing to define what you want, and then you're willing to go and look for it and build it. And that's that's really what we are all about, and that's what I love so much about the lifestyle practice is that we are all about deciding on what lifestyle you want first and then getting the practice to provide that lifestyle. Too much of the time, dentists and doctors are are doing things are basically living their lifestyle to support the practice that they think that they should have so this applies in this situation of looking at practices because you can look at all these practices but if you can have in your mind before all of that the lifestyle that you want where you want to live how much money you want to make what you want things to be like then when you go and look at the practices you see how that plays into your vision So go back and listen to these things that we've been talking about and take ownership, realize that you can do it and you can create and have what you want. Yeah. Love that pep talk. That was good. (laughs) Hoorah. It's true. Remember, this isn't stuff that like just Derek and Justin and other people have done. These are principles that you can just copycat. You can do it, you know, just they're not unicorn practices. They're out there to be found. So it can happen and it can be yours. Lastly, the second week of July, I think is probably the right date. We will be opening the lifestyle practice for one-on-one coaching and for our online business courses, the Lifestyle Practice Academy. All three of us, as far as the academy goes, we have been working pretty hard the last few months rehauling and improving all of the business modules that are in these courses and kind of that form the foundation and kind of mindset of what we teach our dentists. I don't know how you feel, Derek, but it's been one of those things the last couple of months where you just put tons of energy and time into it. And then all of a sudden it is like a finished product. And it just is, it's really sweet. So totally. Yeah. I'm excited for people to enjoy it. People that have already had the Academy and for people who in the second week of July, when we open up, um, you'll have that opportunity as well. So most years we open up three times a year with COVID. This is going to be uh, a twice a year opportunity this year. So we're going to be opening the second week of July by doing an online webinar that's going to teach you how to turn your practice into an ultra profitable small business and how to cut back your working hours while doing that. This webinar is going to be kind of a a kickoff for our our launch week and a sampling of what we do when we work with Dennis in our coaching. So just want to remind you not to miss those days. There's going to be a lot of good content coming your way. So hopefully you take advantage of it. If you've wondered in the back of your mind whether you should join the lifestyle practice, if it's uh, something you should do, this will be a great chance for you to learn more and make the jump in if the time's right for you. Gosh, you're making me excited, Steve. I know. Yeah, it's that time. It kind of went fast, really. Last, it's been six months. So yeah. it's going to be good, though. It's going to be great. Yeah. Awesome. 
All right, everybody, have a great week, and we will talk to you in seven days from now. Thanks for joining us. Sweet.